Hi, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever, and this is episode 187. So you would think that after doing nearly 200 episodes that I'd be running out of things to talk about, uh, which you might be hoping for if you're tired of me rambling on about everything under the sun. But it's actually quite the opposite. New potential topics and show ideas are constantly popping into my head, and I do my best to jot them all down so I don't forget them. But the idea for today's episode came to me last week, when I was doing that show on a recent poll involving British Muslims, and if you remember, one of the things that the poll explored was whether or not British Muslims hold anti-Semitic views. Or maybe I should simply say anti-Jewish, since certain Muslim peoples, such as Arabs, can technically be considered Semitic too. But commonly we think of anti-Semitic as meaning anti-Jewish. But you get my point. Reel it in. Don't get over-analytical. I'm talking to myself, not to you guys. Now I'm talking to you guys. Uh, if I remember correctly, the result was 26% had anti-Semitic views. Or actually, more specifically, I remember now, 26% blamed Jews for the majority of the world's wars. And disturbingly, 5% of the general public held similar beliefs. Actually, I just went back and checked. It was 6% of the general public held similar views. That's one less thing I'll have to apologize for next week. All right. And in passing, I mentioned the tensions between Muslims and Jews. But for the sake of time, I didn't explore the topic in depth. So I thought that's what I do now. I'll discuss a little bit of the history between the two peoples and also take a look at what the Quran has to say, be it good or bad, about the Jews or Jewish people. And I may have broken this ground a little before on the show, maybe during that episode on slavery and the Bible and the Quran, or maybe even earlier, but anyway. So Islam was founded in the 7th century uh, AD or CE, Common Era, uh, and of course, as you're probably aware, it's considered one of the three Abrahamic faiths. The others being Christianity, and the oldest and most venerable of the three is, of course, Judaism. And they're called the Abrahamic faiths also, which you're probably already aware, but just in case. Uh, because all three claim that the roots of their faiths can be traced back to the biblical patriarch Abraham. Or Ibrahim uh, in Arabic. Or Ibrahim. I guess. I think uh, Muslims technically consider Adam a prophet too, who according to the biblical narrative obviously predates Abraham, but anyway. So you would think that with all they have in common, the three Abrahamic faiths would be best of pals, but uh, people are tribal and often they tend to focus on that which divides them instead of that which unites them. I think relations between Muslims and Jews started off somewhat auspiciously. Muhammad supposedly openly admired Judaism. Many Islamic customs and rituals were inspired by those of the Jewish people, such as midday prayer and fasting. And supposedly, or so I read, uh, originally Muslims prayed in the direction of Jerusalem and not Mecca. 
that changed, I believe, after relations between Muslims and the Jewish tribes of uh, Medina deteriorated, to put it mildly, resulting in the famous battles which Muhammad himself took part in or led, uh, the Battle of Badr and the Battle of the Trench. And before I forget, I think one of Muhammad's wives was Jewish too, uh, before she converted to Islam. But supposedly the deteriorating relationship between Muslims and Jews is also reflected in the Quran. And at a certain point, we can notice the tone shifting, um, taking a negative turn in, in um, reference to the Jews, where I, I think the earlier passages are actually more sympathetic to um, the Jewish people. And the Quran refers to Jews roughly, and I emphasize roughly, maybe about 60 or so times. It usually refers to them as, and I'll probably butcher this, Bani Israel or something like that, meaning children of Israel, which is seen as being generally positive. But it also sometimes uses the Arabic word Yehud or Yehudai uh, or Yehudi, <laughs> your hoodie, um, which is seen as having a more negative connotation. And then also the word hada, meaning to be Jewish or a Jew, is also used sometimes. And it's funny, every once in a while, if I feel like I'm being too hard on religion, or if I'm beginning to lose sight of any good that might be gleaned from it, or maybe just so I can be sure that I'm making informed arguments, once in a while I'll return to the actual text. As a Catholic kid, I had to read the New Testament. It was essentially our textbook in Sunday school or CCD. And then as an adult, I went back and read the Gospels again, um, tried to make it through the entire OT and failed. I found the genealogies dry as toast, uh, very boring stuff, grueling to get through. So I started the cheat and hopped around from book to book. I tried to read the Quran before, but didn't get too far, uh, because once again, I found the text to be really dry and boring. And I don't say that to offend anyone. I'm just trying to be honest. I've read numerous surahs while doing research for past episodes. I will say that. But recently, because of how controversial the subject of Islam has become, and because I can be pretty harsh in my criticisms of it um, and sometimes, I thought in fairness, let's go back to the text and get reacquainted with what the book actually says. So I downloaded uh, three or four Quran apps, and uh, I know that sounds kind of funny. It's kind of a weird juxtaposition. Quran, an app, an ancient holy book packaged conveniently for modern mobile devices. And I, I like to pride myself on my penchant for rational thinking. But I, I remember thinking when I was downloading uh, the aforementioned apps, I was like, oh, no, what if the government monitors what apps people are downloading and they think I'm some secret jihadi? Uh, <laughs> paranoid. Yes, I know. All they would probably have to do is just look at my past videos and they'd be like, ah, just another godless atheist. So I tried to read the Quran again, and man, once again, I found it dry as toast. Maybe it's better in the original Arabic. Uh, I think it would have been a lot better if a poet like Jaladin Rumi had written it, uh, but that was centuries before Rumi's time. 
And don't paint me as an Islamophobe because of my dismissive attitude towards the Quran. I'm an atheist. I don't believe that any religious texts are divinely inspired. It's funny, I can read pagan mythology and I love it, but these Abrahamic books, man, uh, there are some moving or inspirational, even uh, well-written parts, but they're few and far between to some degree. So I'll probably use my uh, quote-unquote Quran apps as well as some online sources and try to pick out, but not cherry-pick, uh, some verses or surahs that have to do with quote-unquote the Jews. I always feel self-conscious saying the Jews. On the one hand, Jew or Jews plural is perfectly fine and acceptable, but often uh, people who are anti-Semitic will spit the word Jew or Jews like an uh, epithet. So I'm always afraid that people are going to take it the wrong way. Someday I should ask some of my Jewish friends what they think about that. We actually do talk about Judaism sometimes, but uh, I'm usually drunk and uh, I've never bothered to ask them what terminology they prefer. Uh, let's see. So the Quran is broken up into different books and uh, there is a, an opening or a preface of sorts. Uh, and then it goes into... Book two, Al-Baqarah, uh, which means cow or the cow, rather. So I'll start with uh, the chapter or surah uh, 40. I hope I'm using uh, surah in the proper context. Uh, yeah, but so I'm reading from Al-Baqarah and I'll start with 40. O children of Israel, remember my favor which I bestowed upon you and fulfill your obligations to my covenant with you so that I fulfill my obligations to your covenant with me and fare none but me. I don't know if that's a little annoying. Um, I'm drawing from three or four different sources. Uh, some of them uh, have explanatory text in uh, parentheses. Some don't. Some the wording's a little different than the others, uh, etc. But already we see here in the Quran we have Allah addressing uh, the Jews as children of Israel. And so it starts off with these rather benign verses. And here's uh, 47. O children of Israel, remember my favor which I bestowed upon you and that I preferred you to the Alamin. Uh, mankind and jinns, it says in parentheses, of your time period in the past. And I think in other versions I read, it doesn't make reference to mankind and jinns. I think one I read, it, it says something about how Allah preferred the Jews to all other nations or worlds or something to that effect. And here's 48. And fair a day of judgment when a person shall not avail another, nor will intercession be accepted from him, nor will compensation be taken from him, nor will they be helped. And this is interesting. These next few verses are basically retelling bits of the Exodus story. And so it really is interesting just how much in common the three Abrahamic faiths uh, do have, how much they... Um, utilize the same stories. And so 49 uh, says, And remember when we delivered you from, it looks like Pharaoh's, uh, but then in parentheses, Pharaoh, uh, from Pharaoh's people who were afflicting you with a horrible torment, killing your sons and sparing your women, and therein was a mighty trial from your Lord. 
And remember when we separated the sea for you and saved you and drowned Pharaoh's Pharaoh's people while you were looking at them when the sea water covered them. And remember when we appointed for Musa, that would be Moses, 40 nights, and in his absence you took the calf for worship, and you were Zalamun, polytheists, and wrongdoers, etc. Then after that we forgave you so that you might be grateful. And remember when we gave Musa, Moses, the scripture, the Torah, uh, Torah, and the criterion of right and wrong, so that you may be guided aright. And remember when Musa, Moses, said to his people, O my people, verily you have wronged yourselves by worshiping the calf. So turn in repentance to your creator and kill kill yourselves. The innocent kill the wrongdoers among you. (laughs) That will be better for you with your Lord. Then he accepted your repentance. Truly, he is the one who accepts repentance, the most merciful. And I think there were a couple of times where I found these verses in in the Quran while doing research for this episode, where we find God demanding this kind of barbaric behavior, and then it's kind of punctuated by how merciful God is. And here's uh, 61. And remember when you said, O Musa, Moses, we cannot endure one kind of food, so invoke your Lord for us to bring forth for us what the earth grows, its herbs, its cucumbers. Oh, and I think the reason why I bookmarked this specific one, I think when I was reading up on the topic of anti-Semitism and Islam, this, I think, was one of the surahs that some have used to justify their anti-Semitism. But anyway, I'll continue. Uh, Would you exchange that which is better for that which is lower? Go you down to any town and you shall find what you want. And they were covered with humiliation and misery, and they drew on themselves the wrath of Allah. That was because they used to disbelieve the ayat, proofs, evidences. Evidence is plural. I'm beginning to accept that the word evidence is plural is real. It still sounds weird to me. Verses, lessons, signs, revelations, etc. of Allah and killed the prophets wrongfully. That was because they disobeyed and used to transgress the bounds in their disobedience to Allah, i.e. commit crimes and sins. So I guess some see that particular surah as kind of painting the Jews as sinful or invoking the wrath of Allah. Uh, that continues on to uh, 262. Surely those who believe in those who are Jews and the Christians and the Sabians, whoever believes in Allah and the last day and does good, they shall have their reward from their Lord, and there is no fear for them, nor shall they grieve. So, you know, I believe in intellectual honesty, and I'm just trying to let the evidence and the texts kind of speak for themselves. And in fairness, uh, Surah 262 does have this kind of gentler tone to it and, and seems to kind of mediate the harshness in the controversial, shall I say, Surah above it, 61. And it's basically saying those who believe, you know, whether you be Jews, Christians, or Sabians, if you believe in Allah, I'll charitably say, you know, that means in general God, not that you necessarily have to believe in the doctrine of Islam specifically. 
as long as you do good, believe in the last day, which, you know, must be the resurrection, etc., and believe in God, um, you'll have your reward and you have nothing to fear. So I'm just trying to keep it real and be intellectually honest here. So far, I'm not seeing anything that's um, outrageously anti-Semitic. And then Surah 2, uh, 111, and they say, None shall enter the garden or paradise except he who is a Jew or a Christian. These are their vain desires. Say, bring your proof if you are truthful. And hear, hear, bring your proof. Um, of course, I'm talking about evidence for the supernatural in general. This Surah seems to be... Uh, asking those who claim that only a Jew or a Christian can get into heaven to bring proof of that claim. I'm just trying to be a little cheeky. And then Surah 2, 113, And the Jews say the Christians do not follow anything good. And the Christians say the Jews do not follow anything good, while they recite the same book. Even thus say those who have no knowledge, like to what they say, so Allah shall judge between them on the day of resurrection in what they differ. Then Sarah 2.120, And the Jews will not be pleased with you, nor the Christians, until you follow their religion. Say, surely Allah's guidance, that is the true guidance, and if you follow their desires after the knowledge that has come to you, you shall have no guardian from Allah, nor any helper. So here we can see maybe somewhat more of an antagonistic tone is developing, uh, and it almost reminds me, of that tension we see between the quote-unquote Christians and the Jews and the Gospels. And I put the word Christians in quotes because, of course, the first Christians were Jews. Christianity was essentially a Jewish religion. It grew out of Judaism. Jesus, the apostles, uh, three out of four of the Gospel writers, uh, Luke being the exception according to tradition, all Jewish. Paul, formerly Saul, Jewish. Uh, okay, Surah 2, 121. Those to whom we have given the book, read it as it ought to be read. These believe in it, and whoever disbelieves in it, these it is that are the losers. Suddenly the Quran sounds like Donald Trump. Um, oh, ch- this is uh, 122. O oh, children of Israel, call to mind my favor which I bestowed on you, and that I made you excel the nations. And maybe this was the Surah I was thinking of. It's uh, similar to that earlier one. Surah 2.135. And they say, be Jews or Christians, you will be on the right course. Say, nay, we follow the religion of Ibrahim, uh, the Hanif, and he was not one of the polytheists. Nay, do you say that Ibrahim and Ismael must be uh, Ishmael, and Jacob uh, must be Jacob, and the tribes where Jews or Christians say, Are you better knowing or Allah? And who is more unjust than he who conceals a testimony that he has from Allah? And Allah is not at all heedless of what you do. Then uh, Surah 2, um, must be book 2, uh, verse 211. Ask the Israelites how many a clear sign have we given them, and whoever changes the favor of Allah after it has come to him, then surely Allah is severe in requiting evil, or requiting evil, sorry. Then one more from um, book two uh, from the cow. 
Have you not considered the chiefs of the children of Israel after Musa, when they said to a prophet of theirs, Raise up for us a king, that we may fight in the way of Allah? He said, May it not be that you would not fight if fighting is ordained for you. They said, And what reason have we that we should not fight in the way of Allah, and that we have indeed been compelled to abandon our homes and our children? But when fighting was ordained for them, they turned back, except a few of them, and Allah knew knows the unjust. <clears throat> and then book three is Al-Imran, uh, probably butchered that, uh, but translates from Arabic to the family of Imran. Uh, so here's book three, verse 23. Have you not considered those Jews who are given a portion of the book? They are invited to the book of Allah that it might decide between them. Then a part of them turn back and they withdraw. This is because they say, The fire shall not touch us but for a few days, and what they have forged deceives them in the matter of their religion. And uh, I just want to state once again, so we're dealing with a book that's been translated from the original Arabic, and the wording and the explanatory text can differ from version to version, so if you're someone who's familiar with the Quran or you've read a different version, hopefully you don't think that I'm being dishonest or that I'm reading an incorrect version or something. Uh, like I said, I'm drawing from like three or four different uh, versions here. Then um, book three, Surah 61. Then whoever disputes with you concerning him, Isa, Jesus, after all this knowledge that has come to you, Isa, Jesus, being a slave of Allah and having no share in divinity, say, O Muhammad, saw, come let us call our sons and your sons, our women and your women, ourselves and yourselves. Then we pray and invoke sincerely the curse of Allah upon those who lie. And I think Isa is how you pronounce it, or Isa, I'm not sure, uh, the Arab uh, word for Jesus. And uh, of course, uh, Muslims recognize Jesus as an important figure too. They view him as a prophet. They don't, um, as that Sarah stated, they don't view him as a divine being. And um, they hold this belief that, which has always kind of fascinated me, that Jesus actually escaped death on the cross. Um, and I think, I don't know if this is where Muslims get it, but my hunch would be that they may have borrowed it from uh, earlier Gnostic belief, because there's this Gnostic uh, idea, too, that Jesus actually escaped death on the cross. And I think there's different versions of how he did it. Um, I think there's one disturbing tale where it's kind of this magic trick or illusion where someone else gets crucified in Jesus's place. And I'm trying to think if this is an outside apocryphal Christian text or... or where this comes from, or, or if it's related to Islam, but there's this kind of disturbing picture that's painted of Jesus kind of laughing knowingly at the crucifixion, you know, f from a distance as someone else is being crucified in his place that his executioners think is him, you know. Yeah, but that was one of the key beliefs of Christian Gnosticism, that Jesus was a kind of spiritual being and never really suffered or died on the cross. I think uh, there's a term, 
docetism or something like that that refers to the idea of Jesus being a spiritual rather than a physical being. And of course, you can probably imagine how mainstream Christians throughout the centuries found and probably still find this idea of Jesus not suffering or dying on the cross uh, rather disturbing, possibly even offensive, since it's the passion, Jesus is suffering his death on the cross, which supposedly ransomed mankind from the grip of original sin, so to speak. It gets kind of confusing or convoluted. There's something known as the ransom theory of atonement. And I think depending on who you ask, some say the ransom was paid to the devil, sometimes death itself, uh, sometimes God the Father. But the agreed on point being that it was Adam and Eve, <laughs> you know, disobeying God and eating the wrong kind of produce that um, got us all in the shit, so to speak. And uh, Christ's death was um, the price for salvation. And then 62, uh, this is right on the heels of that last one. Verily, this is the true narrative about the story of Isa, uh, Jesus, or I don't know if it's, I, I'm going to say Isa. Um, and La Ilaha Il Allah. Okay. None has the right to be worshipped but Allah, the one and the only true God, who is neither a wife nor a son. And that's sure to offend Christians too. And indeed, Allah is the Almighty, the All-Wise. So here they're really trying to emphasize the point that Jesus, as important as he is, um, is not divine. He is not the Son of God. And of course, um, that's diametrically opposed to Christian theology. At the heart of Christianity for most people is the, the idea that Jesus is divine and that he is the son of God. But then, of course, we have the mystery of the Trinity. I'll try not to go off on a, a tangent about the uh, Council of Nicaea. Um, what's the, There's a Greek term, or is it homoousius or something like that, um, of the same substance as God, you know, um, the son and the father of the, of the same substance or something like that. Um, 63, and if they turn away and do not accept these true proofs and evidences, remember the first time I heard the word evidence used plural like that was uh, while watching a Dan Barker debate. Evidences, okay. I still can't get used to it. Then surely Allah is all aware of those who do mischief. Don't do mischief. Um, then 64, Say, O people of the scriptures, Jews and Christians, it says in parentheses, come to a word that is just between us and you, that we worship none but Allah, and that we associate no partners with him, and that none of us shall take others as lords besides Allah. Then if they turn away, say, bear witness that we are Muslims. O people of the scripture, Jews and Christians, and I imagine other um, versions of this might be people of the book, uh, which is also a common phrase uh, we hear. Why do you dispute about Ibrahim, Abraham, while the Torah, Torah and the Injil gospel were not revealed till after him? Have you then no sense? I think this uh, has to do with the fact that Muslims see themselves as kind of descendants from Abraham. Um, 
And according to Islamic belief, probably both theologically and physically, I think they see themselves as um, descendants of Abraham's son, Ishmael, if I uh, remember correctly. And they're kind of saying, don't bother disputing with us um, or, you know, trying to bring up the Torah or the Gospels because Abraham, who is, you know, the father of all our faiths or whatever, existed before your holy books uh, or something to that effect. And then 66, verily you are those who have disputed about that which you have knowledge. Why do you then dispute concerning that which you have no knowledge? It is Allah who knows and you not. And this is probably still regarding Abraham and theological differences between the, or points of contention between the different Abrahamic faiths. Then uh, book three, Sora 67, Ibrahim was not a Jew nor a Christian, but he was an upright man, a Muslim, and he was not one of the polytheists. Then uh, 393, all food was lawful to the children of Israel, except that which Israel had forbidden to himself, because the Torah, uh, because the Torah, uh, the Torah was revealed. Say, bring then the Torah and read it if you are truthful. And uh, so it's kind of offering a challenge there. Then book four is Anisa, which means the woman, or the women, rather. So 446, uh, of those who are Jews, these are those who alter words from their places and say, we have heard and we disobey. May you not be made to hear. And Rina, or Rina, distorting the word with their tongues and taunting about religion. And if they had said instead, we have heard and we obey and hearken, and Unzerna, Unzerna, it would have been better for them and more upright. But Allah has cursed them on account of their unbelief, so they do not believe but a little. So there we see this kind of adversarial tone. Is it referring to some Jews or all Jews? I don't know. I'm sure, uh, knowing the way that religious texts tend to be interpreted, there's probably uh, a difference of opinion on exactly what it's saying. Then 447, O you who have been given the book, believe that which we have revealed, verifying what you have, before we alter faces. Now, I remember reading this earlier, and it freaked me out. Before we alter faces, then turn them on their backs, or curse them as we curse the violators of the Sabbath, and the command of Allah shall be executed. See how they forged the lie against Allah, and this is sufficient as a manifest sin. Wherefore, for the iniquity of those who are Jews, did we disallow to them the good things which had been made lawful for them, and for their hindering many people from Allah's way? And then 4161, And their taking usury, though indeed they were forbidden it, and their devouring the property of people falsely, and we have prepared for the unbelievers from among them a painful chastisement. So there's a mention of usury. And of course, um, we start to see the ugly Jewish stereotype start to emerge. This idea of the Jew as duplicitous, as uh, avaricious, you know, as greedy. And we see the word usury right there. And we know that in the Middle Ages, um, Christians were forbidden from engaging in usury, basically charging people for borrowing money, etc. 
And so Jews who were outside those prohibitions or restrictions kind of filled that niche. And um, so it is true that Jewish people, because of their fringe status, um, were kind of relegated to certain professions, one of them being banking, because they weren't bound by the same restrictions regarding usury as uh, Christians were. But here we're dealing with Muslims. So I wonder if there was a similar kind of dynamic going on in the Muslim world where Jews were kind of relegated to, you know, these fringe uh, professions and then kind of, uh, and then were kind of looked down upon for being uh, engaged in those same professions. And then um, some of those same stories I just read, I bookmarked versions of them from different sources, just so you can kind of see how much variation we might encounter when you go from source to source. And here's 44 again uh, from book four. Have you not seen those who were given a portion of the book, the Jews, purchasing the wrong path and wish that you should go astray from the right path? Then 46, among those who are Jews, there are some who displace words from their right places and say, we hear your word, O Muhammad and disobey, and hear, and let you, O Muhammad, hear nothing. And Raina, with a twist of their tongues, and as mockery of the religion Islam, and if only they had said, we hear and obey, and do make us understand, it would have been better for them, and more proper, but Allah has cursed them for their disbelief, so they believe not except a few. And I don't know exactly if I'm reading this right, uh, but there's this phrase that appears repeatedly in parentheses, to Muhammad or O Muhammad saw, but all capitals, S-A-W. I don't know if it's meant to be read as the word saw or if it's, <laughs> it's probably not, I was going to say an acronym. Uh, I have no idea. Well, I'm back through the magic of editing and it actually is an acronym. It or an abbreviation, it stands for the Arabic phrase, which translates into English, uh, peace be upon him. I guess in some versions, uh, the abbreviation of the English translation is used. So P-B-U-H, short for peace be upon him. Oh, this is that weird one that freaked me out. I'll read this, this different version of it. O you who have been given the scripture, Jews and Christians, believe in what we have revealed to Muhammad saw, (laughs) confirming what is already with you. Before we efface faces, and I think in the previous uh, version I read it was change faces by making them like the back of necks. By making change faces or face faces by making them like the back of necks without nose, mouth, eyes, etc. And turn them hindwards or curse them as we curse the Sabbath breakers and the commandment of Allah is always executed. So I wonder if this is meant to be taken literally. Are they talking about punishing someone by the removal of facial features? It could be. Or maybe it's meant to be metaphorical. I have no idea. But we do know that uh, in the Muslim world to this day, 
there are some pretty barbaric and draconian punishments, physical punishments that are meted out. Uh, sometimes the removal of a nose, I think, and things along those lines. So in book five is Almaid or Almaid. I'm probably butchering that. If I have any listeners who speak Arabic, um, I apologize for the damage I'm probably doing to your ears. So let's see, here's uh, 512. And certainly Allah made a covenant with the children of Israel, and we raised up among them 12 chieftains. And Allah said, surely I am with you. And if you keep up prayer and pay the poor rate and believe in my apostles and assist them and offer to Allah a goodly gift, I will most certainly cover your evil deeds. And I will most certainly cause you to enter into gardens beneath which rivers flow. Basically, the uh, Islamic concept of paradise or heaven. But whoever disbelieves from among you after that, he indeed shall lose the right way. Then uh, 513. But on account of their breaking their covenant, we cursed them and made their hearts hard. They altered the words from their places and they neglected a portion of what they were reminded of. And you shall always discover treachery in them, excepting a few of them. So pardon them and turn away. Surely Allah loves those who do good to others. So it does seem that, you know, they're kind of saying or trying to imply that they being the author of the Quran, uh... I'm an atheist, so I don't tend to believe that it was God and that the angel Gabriel dictated it. Um, but anyway, the author um, or authors, because I think wasn't it different scribes and companions of Muhammad who um, wrote down the text over time or something like that. But uh, anyway, I'll continue. And this is um, book five, verse or Surah 18. And the Jews and the Christians say, We are the sons of Allah and his beloved ones. Say, Why does he then chastise you for your faults? Nay, you are mortals from among those whom he has created. He forgives whom he pleases and chastises whom he pleases. And Allah's is the kingdom of of the heavens and the earth and what is between them. And to him is the eventual coming. So next is book five. Verse Asura 32. Um, and this one is really important. And I can remember, I think probably even before 9-11, I know a lot of you guys listening are probably significantly younger than me. I was um, already in my 20s when 9-11 happened. But for a long time, I've had an interest in world religion, etc. And I can remember this inspirational quote that was borrowed from the Quran that I used to hear and really like about how if someone murders one person, it's as if they murder the world or all of mankind. And if you save one person, it is as if you have saved all mankind. And the takeaway seemingly is this very life-affirming idea, you know, that all life is sacred. And if you take life, it's as serious as if you had murdered every uh, murdered all of mankind and vice versa you know and i think following 9-11 when islam was a m- lot more heavily in the spotlight when it w- was starting to be more heavily criticized and of course even now now it's 2016 and uh any fellow youtube junkies like myself who uh 
tend to haunt atheist YouTube channels, you'll of course know that Islam is still incredibly controversial and is still under heavy scrutiny and um, subjected to uh, some pretty harsh criticism. And I myself have criticized Islam probably uh, much more gently than some of my peers out there. Uh, but of course, we have this ongoing war between the SJWs, the so-called social justice warriors, who kind of lean towards the politically correct side regarding Islam and take a kind of kid gloves, hands-off approach. And then we have the people, the, the basically Islam sucks crowd, uh, and I'm somewhere in the middle. I very freely criticize Islamic extremism, as we all should do. Uh, but I, I also criticize the text often, too. And that's something which some uh, SJWs, if you don't mind me using that term, uh, like, say, Steve Shives, won't do. There's some people who are so politically correct, they're afraid to criticize Islam in any way. And as I mentioned in that response to criticism episode I did not long ago, um, you know, I had this kind of argument with a YouTuber by the name of Electric Quelia, and we're now friendly. Uh, in fact, he commented on a Sam Harris video I posted to my to my YouTube page. It's a video of Sam Harris going head-to-head -head with Scott Atran, um, kind of Sam Harris's nemesis. And, uh, and I saw Electric Quelia getting into it with some other YouTubers, and I'm like, I'm staying out of it. You know, I'm not going to get into another long, exhausting fight with someone who I was thankfully able to uh, make peace with. Even though we don't see eye to eye, we were able to more clearly understand each other after being able to more clearly articulate what each other's exact differences were. Oh yeah, but anyway, the reason why I brought that up is that Electric Qualia was trying to make the point that you can be an atheist, you can technically be an atheist without being antagonistic towards religion. And I think that's true. But the point that I was trying to make a moment ago is that, you know, those of us who are kind of the classic atheist, you know, the, the person who isn't satisfied enough to just say, I don't believe what you believe, but we have to tell you why we don't believe it. And I fall into that camp, you know, week after week, I'm criticizing religion, although you can probably tell I have a love for the subject matter too, um, and I'm fascinated by it. I, I, do, I don't hold any punches. I, I freely criticize whatever, whatever religion I feel needs criticizing. And so I don't like when the Steve Shives of the world will maybe criticize Christianity, but hypocritically, in my view, they won't criticize a, another uh, religion, specifically Islam, because they're afraid of looking politically incorrect or they're afraid of, quote-unquote, punching down. But anyway, th this this next sir is a biggie. As I said, um, I used to find this quote very inspirational. You know, if you, I'm paraphrasing, it probably de depends on which version you're reading. If you murder one person, it's if you murdered all of mankind, you save one person, it's as if you saved all mankind. But at some point after 9-11, when we are hearing a lot of criticism of Islam, I remember there's this one scholar who kind of burst the bubble on me concerning uh, that particular surah. And he was saying that that inspirational-sounding quote isn't necessarily as innocuous as you would think 
when you put it into context. So I'm going to read the whole thing for you now. So Sarah, um, 32 from book five, because of, I, I really hope I'm using Sarah in the correct context. Because of what we ordained for the children of Israel, that if anyone killed a person not in retaliation of murder or and to spread mischief in the land, it would be as if he killed all mankind. And if anyone saved the life, it would be as if he saved the life of all mankind. And indeed, there came to them our messengers with clear proofs, evidences, and signs. Even then, after that, many of them continued to exceed the limits by doing oppression unjustly and exceeding beyond the limits set by Allah by committing the major sins in the land. And then, uh, oh boy, maybe when people uh, read that quote, they should read the, the verse right under it. Here's 33. The recompense of those who wage war against Allah and his messenger and do mischief in the land is only that they shall be killed or crucified or their hands and their feet be cut off on the opposite sides or be exiled from the land. That is their disgrace in this world and a great torment is theirs in the hereafter. And then it goes on to 34 except for those who, having fled away and then came back as Muslims with repentance before they fall into your power, in that case, know that Allah is oft forgiving, most merciful. <laughs> and that's, it kind of, you know, ironically falls that bit about the cutting off of hands and crucifixion, etc. And of course, we know that today, uh, one of ISIS's, chosen methods of, uh, of execution is crucifixion. And I have seen some pretty gruesome images that I can't unsee online of uh, ISIS's handiwork and of uh, their crucified victims. And it might sound kind of strange at first, because usually when we hear crucifixion, you know, we think of Jesus, we think of the Romans, etc. Uh, but here, crucifixion is actually prescribed in the Quran as a... Uh, a certain punishment. If you notice, right above the part about if you kill one person, it's if you killed all mankind, it starts off because of that we ordained for the children of Israel, meaning the Jews. And so I've heard this surah criticized because if you really look at it, it could be interpreted as addressing the Jews and saying these restrictions apply to you, not everyone. Or if you want to play devil's advocate, you could say that that same thing, if, you know, if you kill one person, it's as if you kill all, etc. That might be a standard that Muslims themselves and all people under Muslim rule are expected to adhere to. But it can be interpreted and has been interpreted by some as this whole thing is addressing, you know, the Jews. Then 64... The Jews say Allah's hand is tied up. He does not give and spend of his bounty. Be their hands tied up and be they accursed for what they uttered. Nay, both his hands are widely outstretched. He spends of his bounty as he wills. Verily, the revelation that has come to you from Allah increases in most of them their obstinate rebellion and disbelief. See, so I'll skip down the 65. And if only... The people of the scripture, Jews and Christians, had believed in Muhammad saw and warded off evil, sin ascribing partners to Allah, 
and had become Almatican, the pious, we would indeed have blotted out their sins and admitted them to gardens of pleasure and paradise. And if only they had acted according to the Torah, the Torah, uh, the Injil gospel, and what has now been set down to them from their Lord, the Quran, they would surely have gotten provisions from above them and from underneath their feet. There are among them people who are on the right course, but many of them do evil deeds. Okay, and here's another biggie. So there's this ugly stereotype that we sometimes find uh, coming out of the Muslim world. Uh, sorry, Reza Aslan, I know you don't like the term Muslim world. The stereotype of Jews as pigs and monkeys and that can supposedly be traced back to Surah 166 from uh, Book 7. So when they exceeded the limits of what they were prohibited, we said to them, Be you monkeys, despised and rejected. It is a severe warning to the mankind that they should not disobey what Allah commands them to do and be far away from what he prohibits them. And then here's uh, another version of the same Surah. But when, even after this, they disdainfully persisted in that from which they were forbidden, we said to them, become apes, despised and disgraced. And so I believe I, I've read in the past that supposedly younger Jews were seen as apes and the older Jews as swine or something like that. And to be fair, you know, once again, I'll try to be intellectually honest here. I've heard this written off as a verse that refers to people breaking the Sabbath um, or certain Jews who had broken the Sabbath and not Jews as a whole, if that makes it any better. But similar to what we see with other books, you know, certain hateful people will latch on to certain verses and uh, use them as kind of justifications for their bigotry or the hatred. If I'm going to be completely honest, this could be a verse that refers to Sabbath breakers, but it has provided anti-Semitic Muslims or mullahs with plenty of fodder throughout the centuries. So now I think I'm going to read a little bit from Wikipedia about life under Muslim rule. I'm already well familiar with the concept of dimitude or, you know, dimmies. Uh, these people in the Muslim world, non-Muslims living in this kind of second-class status. But I thought for the sake of simplicity, you know, I just go to Wikipedia because it tends to be pretty concise. When you're trying to give details about a topic you're already familiar with. So life under Muslim rule. Jews and Christians living under early Muslim rule were known as dhimmis, a status that was later also extended to other non-Muslims like Hindus. As dhimmis, they were to be tolerated and entitled to the protection and resources of the Ummah, the Muslim commonwealth. In return, they had to pay a tax known as a jizya, in accordance with Quran. That's citing uh, two scholars or authors, Lewis and Polyakov argue that Jewish communities enjoyed toleration and limited rights as long as they accepted Muslim superiority. 
These rights were legally established and enforced. The restrictions on dimmies included payment of higher taxes, at some locations being forced to wear clothing or some other insignia distinguishing them from Muslims, sometimes barred from holding public office, bearing arms or riding a horse, disqualified as witnesses in litigation involving Muslims, at some locations and times, dimmies were prevented from repairing existing or erecting new places of worship, proselytizing on behalf of any faith, but Islam was barred. And so that part about the wearing of insignia to distinguish them from others, um, of course, for any of us that are familiar with um, the nightmare that was the Holocaust, um, you know, yellow stars kind of jump right to our... Uh, to the forefront of our minds. Later additions to the code included prohibitions on adopting Arab names, studying the Quran, selling alcoholic beverages. Abdul Aziz Said writes that the Islamic concept of dhimmi, when applied, allowed other cultures to flourish and prevented the general rise of anti-Semitism. Eh, maybe, maybe not. Um, I could kind of see an argument Either way, maybe keeping people in dimitude um, kept, you know, the proverbial pot from uh, boiling over or whatever and, and prevented a full-blown clash of cultures, maybe. But still, second-class citizenship, kind of sucky. Now it's uh, citing Schweitzer and Perry. It says uh, they give examples of early Muslim anti-Semitism, 9th century persecution and outbreaks of violence, 10th and 11th century anti-Semitic propaganda that made Jews out to be untrustworthy, treacherous oppressors, and exploiters of Muslims. This propaganda inspired outbreaks of violence and caused many casualties in Egypt. An 11th century Moorish poem describes Jews as a criminal people and alleges that society is nearing collapse on account of Jewish wealth and dominance their exploitation and betrayal of Muslims, that Jews worship the devil, physicians poison their patients, and Jews poison food and water as required by Judaism and so on. And um, this echoes similar kind of grotesque accusations that Christians made um, regarding Jews in the Middle Ages, that they were poisoning wells, etc. And I wonder if... Um, the Christians borrowed their stereotypes from the Muslims or vice versa. I don't know. Jews under Muslim rule rarely faced martyrdom or exile or forced conversion, and they were fairly free to choose their residence and profession. Their freedom and economic condition varied from time to time and place to place. Forced conversions occurred mostly in the Maghreb, especially under the Almohads, oh man, I know I'm butchering Sutton, a militant dynasty with messianic claims, as well as in Persia, where Shia Muslims were generally less tolerant than their Sunni counterparts. Notable examples of the cases where the choice of residence was taken away from them includes confining Jews to walled quarters, mullahs, in Morocco beginning from the 15th century and especially since the early 19th century. And perhaps on a lighter or more upbeat note, it, it discusses how Jews fared under Muslim rule in Egypt and, and Iraq. 
The caliphs of Fatimid dynasty in Egypt were known to be Judeophiles, according to Leon Paliakov. They paid regularly to support the Jewish institutions, such as the Rabbinical Academy of Jerusalem. A significant number of their ministers and counselors were Jews. The Abbasids, too, similarly were respectful and tolerant towards the Jews under their rule. Benjamin of Tudela, a famous 12th century Jewish explorer, described the Caliph al Abbasi or al Abbasi as a great king and kind unto Israel. Benjamin also further goes on to describe about al Abbasi that many belonging to the people of Israel are his attendants. He knows all languages and is well versed in the law of Israel. He reads and writes the holy language, Hebrew. He further mentions Muslims and Jews being involved in common devotions, such as visiting the grave of Ezekiel, whom both religions regard as a prophet. Then um, the Iberian Peninsula. With the Muslim conquest of the Iberian Peninsula, Spanish Judaism flourished for several centuries. Thus, what some refer to as the Golden Age for Jews began. During this period, the Muslims of Spain tolerated other religions, including Judaism, and created a heterodox society. Muslim relations with Jews in Spain were not always peaceful, however. The 11th century saw Muslim pogroms against Jews in Spain. Those occurred in Cordoba in 1011 and in Grenada in 1066, or Granada. In the 1066 Granada massacre, a Muslim mob crucified the Jewish vizier, Joseph ibn Nagrela, and massacred about 4,000 Jews. The Muslim grievance involved was that some Jews had become wealthy and others had advanced to positions of power. I mean, hey, if you put people on the fringes and basically relegate them to the role of bankers, hey, they might eventually accumulate some wealth and power. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, you're putting them in charge of the banks. And to this day, you know, there's this the, the ugly stereotype that Jews run the world, that uh, Jews run the banking system or whatever. And I think this has its roots in the fact that, as I said, because of prohibitions against usury, um, etc., Jews were relegated to certain professions, including banking. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're out to take over the world or that they control everything behind the scenes, you know? That goes into the Almohad um, dynasty, which overthrew the dynasty that ran Spain during the early Muslim era, offered Christians and Jews the choice of conversion or expulsion. In 1165, one of their rulers ordered that all Jews in the country convert on pain of death, forcing the Jewish rabbi, theologian, philosopher, and physician Maimonides to feign conversion to Islam before fleeing the country. In Egypt, Maimonides resumed practicing Judaism openly, only to be accused of apostasy. He was saved from death by Saladin's chief administrator, who held that conversion under coercion is invalid. During his wanderings, Maimonides also wrote the Yemen Epistle, a famous letter to the Jews of Yemen, who were then experiencing severe persecution at the hands of their Muslim rulers. In it, Maimonides describes his assessment of the treatment of the Jews at the hands of Muslims. 
on account of our sins, God has cast us into the midst of this people, the nation of Ishmael, that is Muslims, who persecute us severely and who devise ways to harm us and to debase us. No nation has ever done more harm to Israel. None has matched it in an it and debasing and humiliating us. None has been able to reduce us as they have. We have borne their imposed degradation, their lies, their absurdities, which are beyond human power to bear. We have done as our sages of blessed memory have instructed us, bearing the lies and absurdities of Ishmael. In spite of all of this, we are not spared from the ferocity of their wickedness and their outbursts at any time. On the contrary, the more we suffer and choose to conciliate them, the more they choose to act belligerently towards us. Okay, that goes into modern times, uh, and it's talking about the Ottoman Empire, Turkey, Iraq, and Kurdistan. Um, it's talking about the poor treatment of Assyrian Christians, at the hands of, of the Turks and how they lost their lands. Then further down, it's comparing the plight of the Assyrian Christians with the experience of Kurdish Jews who had been dwelling in Kurdistan for 2,000 years or so, but were forced to emigrate to Israel in the early 1950s. The Jews of Kurdistan were forced to leave as a result of the Arab-Israeli war, as a result of increasing hostility and acts of violence against Jews in Iraq and Kurdish towns and villages, and as a result of the new situation that developed during the 1940s in Iraq and Kurdistan in which the ability of Jews to live in relative comfort and tolerance, which was disrupted from time to time prior to that period with their Arab and Muslim neighbors, as they had done for many years, practically came to an end. And this is kind of timely. It goes into the 21st century. It's talking about France being the home to Europe's largest population of Muslims, about 6 million. It's about how it's also the home of the continent's largest community of Jews, about 600,000. In 2000, Muslims attacked synagogues in retaliation for damage done to their Muslim brethren in the Palestinian territories. Many Jews protested. The acts were declared Muslim anti-Semitism. By 2007, however, attacks were much less severe and an all-clear was perceived. However, during the 2008-2009 Gaza War, tensions between the two communities increased and there were several dozen reported instances of violence such as arson and assaults. French Jewish leaders complained of a diffuse kind of anti-Semitism becoming entrenched in the Muslim community. Well, Muslim leaders responded that the issues were political rather than religious and that Muslim anger is not against Jews, it's against Israel. Then why were they attacking French Jews? Then I got to tell you, ain't learning fun. If you read enough, you always end up learning something new that makes your jaw drop. Henry Ford, yes, that Henry Ford, wrote an anti-Semitic treatise entitled The International Jew. Oh, wait, then there's uh, something right before that. Yeah, that's talking about how in 2012, the Palestinian Authority Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Muhammad Ahmad Hussein, cited hadiths calling for the killing of all Jews. In Egypt, Dar al-Fadillah, I think it is, uh, published a translation of Henry Ford's anti-Semitic treatise, The International Jew, complete with distinctly anti-Semitic imagery on the cover. In 2014, the Anti-Defamation League published a global survey 
survey, yeah, survey of worldwide anti-Semitic attitudes, reporting that in the Middle East, 74% of adults agreed with a majority of the survey's 11 anti-Semitic propositions, including that Jews have too much power in international financial markets and that Jews are responsible for most of the world's wars. And that's that same question we found in that recent poll, um, which uh, focused on British Muslims. Anti-Semitic comments by Muslim leaders and scholars. A May 2006 study of Saudi Arabia's revised school book curriculum discovered that the eighth grade books included the following statements. There are the people of the Sabbath whose young people God turned into apes and whose old people God turned into swine to punish them. Yeah, that's what I was saying earlier. As cited in Ibn Abbas, the apes are Jews, the keepers of the Sabbath, while the swine are the Christian infidels of the communion of Jesus. Some of the people of the Sabbath were punished by by being turned into apes and swine. Some of them were made to worship the devil and not God through consecration, sacrifice, prayer, appeals for help, and other types of worship. Some of the Jews worship the devil. That makes uh, little sense. Some of, well, in a lot of ways. Um, some of them were made to worship the devil and not God through consecration, sacrifice, prayer, appeals for help, and other types of worship. Bizarre. Then, um... Underneath it says, Saudi textbooks for ninth graders teach that, and in quotes, the annihilation of the Jewish people is imperative. And this is the Saudis who are supposed to be our uh, allies. Heads of American publishing houses have issued a statement asking the Saudi government to delete the hate. Delete the hate. That's something I think everyone should do. But anyway, I'm going to call this quits. I haven't started editing this yet, and it's almost two hours. For those of you who like long episodes, indulge. I hope you enjoy it. For those of you who like quick little YouTube videos, uh, my apologies ahead of time. And uh, you guys know the drill. You can follow the show on Twitter, like the Facebook page, leave a review on iTunes, subscribe through iTunes. If you want to help the show out monetarily, you can use the PayPal widget at the bottom of the Podbean page. There's all that famous alliteration. Or you can go to patreon.com slash theweekindoubt. And for as little as 99 cents a month, you can support the show. All right, thanks, and, and uh, until next time.